0: The scripture reading this morning comes from Genesis 1.1 and one thirty one a and it is found on page one and two of your pew Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and in verse 31, and God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. This is the word of the Lord. We are beginning a new series this fall called "A Story Worth Living," and um, we're we'll spending the next seven weeks looking at some of these uh, stories that we tell in culture, and how does the Bible uh, address those stories, affirm those stories? And so, I'm um, glad that you're here for this fall as we look at this question of, are we living a story worth living? And as we prepare to do that this morning for the, this first message in this new series, I'd like to begin as we do each week and pray and ask that God would be uniquely at work during this time of studying His words. So, let's do that now. Father in heaven, we're thankful that You've given us the Bible. And I say that nearly every week, and it's always true that You—I'm so grateful for that that you've not left us without a way of, of knowing you and understanding you. So thank you for the gift of the Scriptures. And I pray now that as we study them together, as we ask these questions about the stories that we tell as a culture, that you would grant us fresh insight. Um, insight not necessarily being new information, but information made new and, and fresh to our situation uh, this morning. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it was 1998, uh, and I was 16 years old, and this commercial was everywhere. Anybody remember that one back from 1998, the Gap Khakis commercial? Well, I, as a six-year I loved that commercial. Um, It it made khakis cool. It it made me want to try swing dancing, which I I did uh, with very little success. It turns out that rhythm, coordination, counting in your head at the same time as trying to do movements was a little too much for me. Um, But those khakis, they they promised that I would be cool. Um, they, They told a story that if I had them, I'd be fun, that the girls would like me, that the guys would think I was sharp. I needed those khakis. And in fact, through most of high school, I never wore jeans. It was a point of pride that I only wore khakis, thank you. Um, And looking back now, I I see that the story didn't work out quite like I I thought it was. So, this is what it actually ended up uh, looking like. And I I saw this picture, I was like, someone rescue that poor young man from the the khaki and plaid tent that collapsed on him. And I was like, oh no, those are his clothes. you could fit three other humans in those pants um, with, with room to spare still. Uh, and the thing was, I, I did that on, on purpose. Uh, I mean, I wore those clothes on purpose. That wasn't a mistake. Rachel had a lot of work to do uh, when we got married with my wardrobe, so I'm grateful to her for that. Um, but they made clothes that baggy on purpose, and I, and I bought them and wore them uh, that way on purpose. Uh, why? Uh, because, because Gap sold me a story. About what those khaki pants would, would do for me. Um, I wasn't just buying a, a pair of pants, I was buying cool. Uh, it didn't quite work out cool for me, but that's what I thought I was buying. I, I was buying fun and hip, and every year companies spend billions of dollars to sell us not just products, but stories. Uh, In 2016, uh, Gap alone spent $600 million on advertising worldwide. $600 million. Do you know how much money that is? I mean, really? How much money that is? Uh, That's enough money to buy a Honda Accord for every parking spot at the Truman Sports Complex. Every one of the 19,000 spaces at Truman Sports Complex. $600 million. And, And we believe those stories. We can actually let the main narratives of our lives go to the highest bidder. And it's not just advertising. Everyone uh, tries to tell us what our story should be. You and I uh, both base our stories on a whole host of assumptions. And assumptions are those things that we just believe to be true. We don't question it. We don't even really think about it. We just take it by faith. And Christian or not, we all live by faith in in our assumptions. It's why you live where you live, where you went to school, where you went to school, if you went to school— The things that you possess, how you spend your time, our assumptions of what life is and should be drive those decisions, the stories that we tell. But is our story right? Are our assumptions true? Because while we may share these assumptions with our culture, uh, think about other cultures around the world, right? Many of them have radically different baseline assumptions than, than we do or even just think about people who lived here in Kansas City 100 years ago, 200 years ago. Same geography, very different assumptions, right? Very different assumptions. I, I saw an advertisement in someone's home. It was kind of a vintage advertisement for uh, a, a doctor recommending their favorite brand of cigarettes. And it's not that long ago, right? Different sets of assumptions. They're culturally located. Is the story that we're living a story worth living? Is the story that you and I are writing in our lives every day, based on our assumptions, through our decisions, our choices, our purses, is that story a story worth living? When you step back and really begin to examine your life, is the story that you've chosen a story worth living? This question, of course, isn't a, a new question. Uh, in fact, when God's people were preparing to leave slavery in Egypt and travel to the Promised Land, they were surrounded by the stories of theirs, their cultures, the cultures around them—the Egyptian stories, the Canaanite stories, stories about what the good was, how to live a successful life, how to be happy. The Israelites, God's people, were surrounded by a whole host of stories and assumptions. But when God delivered them, He wanted them to start their new life with a different story, a better story, the right story. And so He inspired a a person named Moses, perhaps you've heard of Moses before, uh, to write a collection of books, um, which we have as the first five books of the Old Testament. They're sometimes called the Torah or the Law. The first volume of these books, of these teachings, these five books, is Genesis. Now, when we think about Genesis, I think we immediately tend to start thinking about uh, debates about creation and evolution and young earth and old earth, and did it really happen in seven literal days, uh, which are important conversations and debates to have. But most scholars say that those questions aren't the main purpose of what's written, especially in the historical context where those questions weren't being asked. The main set of questions that's being answered, the main purpose was to give God's people a new set of assumptions of who God is, who we are, what's wrong and what's right with the world and us and what can be done about it. See, the purpose of Genesis 1-3 to is to dispel the competing mythologies around Israel. And that remains their purpose today, dispel the competing mythologies, the stories, the assumptions that we tell ourselves. Israel needed it, and we do too. And so in these next seven weeks together, we're going to look at these early chapters of Genesis, this, this baseline story to wrestle with our cultural narratives, those baseline assumptions that we all have. We want to see where our story aligns with the Genesis story and also where the Genesis story begins to press in and challenge our cultural assumptions. Why? Because I want mine to be a story worth living and so each week in this series, we're going to begin with a cultural narrative, one of those just assumptions, the kind of these everybody knows this to be true in culture. And then we're going to look at how that assumption, that narrative, interacts with Genesis 1 to 3. What's good about this assumption? What's, what, where does it fall short? Now, we also know that a series like this where we're engaging cultural narratives and the Bible together is probably one that's going to raise even more questions than than ordinary for you. And so um, we won't be able to get to all those questions or raise all those questions in every sermon. So we want to try something new and that is to allow you to text in questions that you have uh, during the message or uh, even on Sunday afternoon as you're talking with friends, talking with family your spouse maybe. Um, If you have a question, text it into the number that's on the screen, so drop that number down, put it in your phone, text your questions in, and then on Mondays, Monday afternoon, maybe around 3.15, we're going to do a Facebook Live with a few of our teachers um, and just have a conversation about some of those questions that came in. We'll get to as many as we we can. So you can either join us on Monday afternoons for that Facebook Live, probably around 3.15 or so, um, or you can just watch the video later. It'll be posted on all of our, our Facebook pages. So again, store that number, text in your questions that you have as you're listening to the message, as you're thinking about what we've been talking about, and we'll try to uh, answer those questions. Um, all of our campuses around the city will be doing that, so uh, hopefully that will be a good thing for us. And uh, the first assumption that we're going to look at this week in this series um, can be you stated with a simple hashtag, YOLO. I know. I can't believe I just said it either. Uh, but there's something we don't want to miss here. There's something in YOLO that we all tend to believe. So tell me, what does YOLO mean? Do you know what? Somebody shouted out. What does it mean? You only live once, right? Um, but what, is it, what does it really mean? What's behind this idea of you only live once? Well, I did some some research on this this week. Where did this come from? How did it get popularized? And, and it was actually the Canadian rapper Drake uh, who first popularized it with uh, with this song, The Motto, which I went and listened to this week. I, I will not recommend it. It's it's pretty <laughs> vulgar and a misogynistic song. Um, but, but as we'll see in a minute, um, even Drake gets part of the story right, Uh, and what you see, and you only live once, is that what it's getting at is this, is that life is so short, so enjoy it. Get all you can while you can. And while that sentiment is simple enough, underlying it is a deep philosophical statement about the world, a baseline assumption, a cultural narrative. Namely, that this world is all that there is. That as Carl Sagan put it many years ago, that the cosmos is all that ever was, is, or ever will be. I mean, who knew Carl Sagan and Drake had so much in common? Now, you may be thinking this morning, well, Bill, I'm, I'm a Christian. I, I don't believe that. I, I believe in, in the resurrection, the life everlasting. And I, I believe that too, at least as a proposition. But at an emotive, decision-making level, which is where these cultural assumptions, these narratives, these stories, is where they work at that decision-making, emotional level. I often live as though I believe that this life is all there is. And just the other day, I, I found myself lamenting that It's highly unlikely that I'm going to be able to get to all 59 national parks in my lifetime. This is a a quest I'm on to visit as many as we can as a family. And some of them are just too remote and too expensive to get to. And I was starting to get really bummed out about it, actually. Uh, These are the kind of things I get bummed out about. I don't know. Uh, And then I realized, but wait, I have a bigger hope in my life than visiting Gates of the Arctic National Park. I mean, you can only get there by bush plane. It's super remote above the Arctic Circle in Alaska. But it's like, my hope is bigger than that, Bill. Like, you have a better hope than just getting to Gates of the Arctic National Park. But do you see what I mean? We tend to live as though this life is all there is, so I better enjoy it. I better get all that I can while I can. Now, what may surprise you is that Genesis 1 actually affirms of a lot of what underlies this belief, this cultural assumption that I should enjoy the good life of the world in all the ways that I can. Because you see, you only live once kind of mentality, it sees the goodness of the world that we live in. It, It recognizes the beauty and wonder of this place. And it's right to do that. The world is a very good place. And this is what I mean by Drake gets part of the story right. There is pleasure to be found in this world. It's a very good place. Remember how the biblical story begins. We heard the first verses of it read right before the message. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters without form and void. It was, that means it was uninhabitable. Whatever was at this moment when God first created, it was unfit for human life and enjoyment, but God spoke and he forms it and he shapes it. And by the end of chapter one, we read these words. And God saw everything that he made and behold, it was very good. It was very good. I think about the world in which we live in. Yes, uh, there absolutely is hardship and suffering and, and hatred and anger. We, we've seen that. we know that. But there is also deep goodness in a sunset, in a milkshake, in the pleasures of friendship, the, the feeling you have at a concert. Uh, viewing a piece of art at the nelson simply the joy of walking or running if you do those things for fun um, earlier this year uh, our family visited a national park part of our quest uh together and this was the first time we'd ever done this as a family going into a national park we actually visited four over the summer but the first one we went to was canyon lands national park in utah and as we walked down our first trail as a family to visit Mesa Arch and Canyonlands, the warm breeze blowing over us, we knew that we were experiencing something of the goodness of this world. Uh, Lucy, our three-and-a-half-year-old, just kept saying to us over and over again, I love this, I love this, I love this. We got a taste of the very goodness of the world that day. And, of course, you don't have to be a Christian to experience the goodness of the world. In fact, we can find deep meaning in the world uh, apart from Christianity or any reference uh, to God precisely because of how much goodness is in the world. And Genesis 1 actually explains why that's true why that phenomenon can happen, that you can find deep meaning apart from God. The reason that you can't, even as a a non-Christian, someone who would deny the existence of God, find this meaning is because the world was created with purpose and meaning in mind. So this morning, you may not yet be at a place where you would say, I believe in God or I believe in Jesus, but you would say, I still find my life meaningful. Well, you Christians would say that you should expect to find that. it's how God designed the world to work. And as Christians, we have to be careful not to forget God in the world that he has made. Because of how good the world is, it's, it's easy, actually far too easy to allow ourselves never to look past the goodness of creation to even the even greater goodness of the one made it. To enjoy the created without ever enjoying the creator. See, we can tell a pretty good story without God, but the question is, is it the best story? That leads us to the second thing. Yes, the world is very good, but the world is not enough. The world is very good, but the world is not enough. And I think we know it. And again, one of the primary reasons that Genesis was written, that Moses recorded this book inspired by God, was to counteract the stories of the cultures and people around Israel. The story that Moses writes in Genesis 1 takes on the creation stories and the other gods of the people of Egypt and Canaan. Uh, Old Testament scholar uh, H. Conrad Heyer points out with such an illuminating way how the creation account does this. He says, each day of creation dismisses another cluster of deities. On the first day, the gods of light and darkness are dismissed. On the second day of creation, the gods of sky and sea. On the third day, the, earths of God, uh, the, the earth gods and the gods of vegetation. On the fourth day, the sun, moon, and star gods. The fifth and sixth day take away any associations with divinity from the animal kingdom. And finally, with human existence too is emptied of any intrinsic deity. While at the same time, all human beings, from the greatest to the least... Not just pharaohs, kings, and heroes are granted divine likeness. You See what this narrative is doing. It's telling a different story than the cultures around it. So what's the dominant story in our culture? Well, it's the story of a closed universe. That the cosmos is all that there ever was, is, or will be that we live in a closed system, that there is no supernatural or metaphysical. And we, and I mean us as humans today, now assume that we can explain everything without God. Canadian philosopher um, Charles Taylor, close friend of Canadian rapper Drake, not really, I'm just, I, don't think, I don't think they know each other. Um, but Canadian philosopher Charles Taylor, uh, in his award-winning uh, book, A Secular Age, it won the 2007 Templeton Prize for Philosophy. He calls this reality of living in this closed world, he calls it the imminent frame. That we are trapped in a world that you can't get outside of. That for the first time in human history... Taylor argues, that we humans live in a closed universe. There is a ceiling on reality. What you see is what you get, and we all embrace it at a certain level. Almost everything you and I do, even if we're Christians, assumes that there is no God. It's just the waters that we swim in. I joked a moment ago, right, about Drake and Charles Taylor being buddies, But what Taylor is describing with this language of imminent frame is what lies underneath the motto, YOLO. And there are at least two problems with the imminent frame, though. And just to be clear, before we look at those two problems, uh, it's not like the Christian story is unassailable, right? Right? That is, since every story has some unprovable assumptions at its core, every story, even the naturalistic story, which leads to the imminent frame, requires faith. So certainly no one is denying that the Christian story requires faith, that there's certain things that that could be questioned about Christianity, of course. But what's often missed is that the naturalistic story also requires faith. So here's just two areas where I think you have to demonstrate a lot of faith in the naturalistic story and the imminent frame story. Two areas of struggle. First, there's serious logical problems. Questions like, why is there something rather than nothing? And why? And why is the something that does exist so good? And, and how did it come to be? I mean, of course, microevolution, small changes and adaptations in species, sure, that's easy. But the, the idea of a macroevolution on a naturalistic framework, apart from God and intelligent design and His power. And how do you move from inorganic becoming organic? How does the simple cell become the incredibly complex thing that is an an eyeball. Time, chance. There's a lot of faith required to hold those positions. Second, and I, I think this one's even more compelling to me, not only are there logical problems with the imminent frame story, but there are also serious existential problems. What do I mean by that? Well, I mean that the naturalistic story—it's—it's it's too thin of a story. We need—we need a thicker story. It just doesn't make sense of the depth of emotion and meaning that we feel in our lives. Uh, take music as just one example. The Economist uh, ran a story a few years ago in their holiday issue about music and why people seem to have such strong emotional responses to music, regardless of their their worldview. Their perspective on God, theology across the world. People, we just, there's something about music that grabs a hold of us, that touches a place within us. And the article concluded by noting that the lack of consensus or understanding about why music moves people from a scientific perspective is really difficult. No one really knows why on an evolutionary framework why this would be the case. It doesn't seem to serve any value in sort of natural selection or preserving this feature. So this is what the author writes at the end of the article. The truth, the author writes, of course, is that nobody yet knows why people respond to music. This was around Christmas time, but when the carol singers come calling, whether the emotion they induce is joy or pain, we may rest assured that science is trying hard to work out why. And music and poetry often capture the sense that this world is not enough. Right now, uh, U2 is touring for the 30th anniversary of the Joshua Tree album, and they'll actually be at Arrowhead this, uh, this September. Um, and what's one of the most popular tracks from that album, right? If you're a U2 fan, if you're not, right? It, with the song, I Still Haven't Found What I'm Looking For. I Still Haven't Found What I'm Looking For. This existential question. This world doesn't seem to be enough. But let's be honest, uh, you, you too, Bono, it's, it's practically Christian, okay? Um, so let's, let's look at another example. Uh, what about Bon Iver and their critically acclaimed song, Over Soon? These are just a few lines in the chorus that kind of get repeated. It might be over soon. Where are you going to look for confirmation? There I find you marked in constellation. There isn't a ceiling in our garden. Now, the poetry is a little bit obtuse, perhaps, there. But what is he saying? There isn't a ceiling in our garden. The world, our garden, this place that we live, our reality, is there really a ceiling, a limit, an end, or could there be more? Do we live in a closed, imminent frame? Or perhaps is the top of the frame open after all? In the beginning, God. Now, of course, simply wishing something to be true or longing for it to be true doesn't make it true. Just the fact that we find examples in our culture of people longing for something beyond this world or longing for meaning greater than this world has to offer doesn't mean that there is necessarily meaning outside the world. Simply because Christians long that God be real doesn't make him so. But likewise, an atheist longing for God not to be real doesn't make it so. You see, our longings in and of themselves don't settle these questions. But what we need to ask is which story provides the most plausible answer to the longings that we experience? And is it a story worth living? So as we think about next steps this morning, I want us to consider a question together. Uh, Whether you're here this morning as someone who's been a committed Christian for many years or maybe this is your first time in church ever, maybe your first time back in church for a really long time I want us all to ask ourselves the question what story am I telling myself and not just what story do I think I live by but when I look at my choices what do they tell me about the story I actually believe that I'm actually telling about myself in the world And here are three things to keep in mind as you ask yourself that question. First, remember to doubt your doubts. Remember to doubt your doubts. All too often we give our doubt too much power. There are certainly lots of reasons to doubt Christianity. Uh, As a pastor, engaging with people on a regular basis and even my own uh, wrestlings, I wrestle with those doubts about the Christian story all the time. But do we equally question the plausibility of other stories? Because certainly, while my Christianity is not doubt free, I have deeper, more troubling doubts about a closed world devoid of meaning and accountability. Doubt your doubts. Second, be on the lookout for meaning everywhere. Be on the lookout for meaning in all of life. You see, understanding that there is a life beyond the material world infuses deep meaning into the ordinary in at least two ways. First, everything is more valuable and precious. Trees and grass aren't just plants, they're creations. Even the smallest ant in your backyard, or the termites that I found eating the fireplace logs that I had put in there for decoration this week exists because god created it there are no ordinary creatures in this sense Uh, so everything's more meaningful second because there's life beyond the material world we are accountable to a creator for our whole lives from washing the dishes to walking the dog to eating breakfast it all matters our work matters everything matters it won't all be lost and forgotten when the universe just burns out some millions or billions of years from now. If you want to go deeper into how the Christian story brings this kind of meaning and significance to the whole of our lives, uh, I would love to invite you to be a part of what we call here at Christ Community, what we call razors. Uh, it's a great way to learn how to do this. Razor's Leadership Pathway, it's a class that we offer every fall. And I'd love for, for any of you, all of you, to come do that with me this fall. It's, it's 10 weeks. Uh, it'll help you connect your faith and to all of life, to learn to lead well and more skillfully wherever you spend the majority of your time, at home, at work, school. It's from 6.30 to 8.15 on Wednesdays. There's no cost for the class. There's even childcare provided. Uh, free of cost. We want to invest in you to help you discover meaning everywhere, to help you live a better story, a story worth living. And then third, never stop longing for more. Never stop longing for more. Fight the crippling cynicism that says that this is all there is that this is as good as it gets there is so much more to long for to hope for so much more that will be never succumb to the cynical impulse of our age which i believe is so great but continue to long for more C.S. Lewis, who you know, has had such a deep influence on my life. may not know all of his story, but Lewis uh, was an atheist. Um, He was a professor at Oxford uh, who became um, or returned to his Christian faith. He grew up in the Anglican Church in England as a boy. And after seeing the horrors of World War I, walked away from Christianity and became a convinced and committed atheist. But after a long season of doubting his doubts, Lewis became a Christian. And Lewis believed the Christian story not only because he became deeply convinced of its intellectual integrity and credibility, but also because it spoke to the deepest longings of his heart and experience. One of his most famous addresses was a sermon that he gave called The Weight of Glory. And When I was on sabbatical and had a chance to travel to Oxford, I was able to see the the church that he gave that address in, and, and he spoke these words. He says, The books or music in which we thought the beauty was located in will betray us if we trust them. It was not in them. It only came through them. And what came through them was longing." These things, the beauty, the memory of our own past, are good images of what we really desire. But if they are mistaken for the thing itself, they will turn into dumb idols, breaking the hearts of their worshipers. For they are not the thing itself. They are only the scent of a flower we have not found, the echo of a tune we have not heard, news from a country we have never visited. the heart of the Christian story is a man dying on the cross for his enemies, for us. See, Jesus lived and died and rose again. And because of that, there is more to life than this. You see, ultimately, our desires, our longings are not too strong, but too weak. Don't just long for a hope for a nice house and a good retirement or or to visit all the national parks. I mean, yes, hope for those things, but don't just hope for them. Long for so much more than that. Long for every tear to be wiped away, every wrong to be righted, all things to be new. That's what Jesus offers. And not just in the future, far off someday when we're swept up into some heaven somewhere. No, but Jesus promises He's bringing His kingdom to earth. Today, in a relationship with Him, you can begin to experience the more of life. The Apostle John, one of Jesus' closest followers, wrote at the end of his life these words he says in the testimony the story the eyewitness that i have the testimony is this that god has given us eternal life and this life is in his son the more that you long for is found in jesus will you come to him